Doesn't it seem too much to bear? Half of the world live on less than four pounds a day. And the world's richest 22 men have more money than all of the women in Africa. In our own local way, we can see this chasm between rich and poor. If we just take a walk from St. Luke's here in Thurnby to Christchurch over in Thurnby Lodge. And it's not just about wealth or poverty. Every day we hear about the ways that people have been deceitful, the way that people have exploited others or abused their power, the ways that they've seized power over other human beings. Young men and women are coerced into working without pay in nail bars and car washes and fields and massage parlors just within miles of our homes. And we feel helpless in the face of these harsh realities. But it is our shared desire for low-cost gratification that has led, however indirectly, to these appalling circumstances. I don't know whether you feel remarkably privileged or maybe you feel despised and attacked like you're a, a victim but there is no denying that we are all sucked into it we are all at various times both the victim and the oppressor i really hope that none of us are directly involved in the oppression of nations if you are please speak to tom not me um, but we all, at times, treat other people with contempt. We all fail to stand up for those in need. We all benefit from systems which hold other people down and unjustly elevate others. And when we do, we deny the image of God in every other human being. Isaiah was written at a very different time in a very different place but it speaks to the same basic brokenness we might call it our disobedience or our unfaithfulness or our sin our desire to put other things before god and to deny the value of the people that we live alongside i think that this is why jesus returns to isaiah time and time again because this question is so central to his ministry. How is God going to respond to our failure to live up to everything that his covenant demands? There's this line that I love from Jonathan Swift who wrote Gulliver's Travels, which isn't just about big people and little people. Satire is a sort of glass wherein beholders do generally discover everybody's face but their own. That when we read satire, it makes us really aware of all the problems, but we think it couldn't possibly be us. And I think the writings of the prophets are a little bit like that sometimes. We imagine that they are condemning everyone except for us, but they are in fact calling us to re-examine ourselves to discover how we, 
who think that we're safe, who think that we've got it all sewn up, are as much part of the problem as we are victims of it. As many have said before me, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Do you ever wonder why the Israelites didn't repent? Why they didn't listen to prophet after prophet telling them that the way that they were heading was away from God? Why they treasured these writings enough to preserve them through hundreds of years, and yet they allowed the devastation to happen anyway? Perhaps it's a little bit easier when we look at something like climate change. We can read all of the articles that we like telling us that fossil fuels are destroying the planet, but if we feel comfortable in our warm homes and people with oil are still getting rich, then there's very little that's going to change. We can deal with a threat if it's right there in front of us and it impacts us directly and immediately, but something that's just over the horizon is so hard to motivate ourselves towards, especially when it demands repentance. That is changing our patterns of thought, our patterns of behavior, and following the pattern of Jesus. The Israelites may have known that the way that they were living was tearing them apart from one another and from God, but their comfort and their power meant that things continued much as they were leaving those at the bottom of the pile, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, to continue to suffer. And worship in the temple drifted further and further away from what God had set out in the covenant with Moses. So, <clears throat> as Israel finally stares down the barrel of the gun, or in this case, the chariots of the Assyrian Empire, they may well wonder, where has God gone? Why has this God who was their strength every morning abandoned them? The envoys of peace are weeping. The roads are deserted. Treaties and oaths turn out to mean nothing. All of the edifices that people have constructed in an effort to maintain peace are withering away. And it's only when the palaces are forsaken, when the city is deserted, and the fortifications are overrun with wild animals, that God is able to pour out righteousness and justice. When everything is stripped bare. And don't we find that that's true in our own lives? That it's only when everything is lost that God gets to work. If you ask people the stories that have shaped their lives, it's very rarely the moment when they bought a new car or they got a promotion. It's more often, it's when they found themselves at rock bottom and when they've cried out to God. And God has revealed himself to them in a new way. And of course, it's not because God delights in our suffering in any way but because God takes every opportunity to plant new life in us. These are the moments when we are most open to God getting involved in our lives. So you see, the Israelites 
are calling on God in strength and holiness to deal with their enemies, to bring down fire. They are longing for a time when God's peace will be restored in the land. But at the same time, they're striving for peace in their own image rather than trusting in God. So in chapter 31, we find that they've appealed to Egypt, the very place that God rescued them from slavery to save them from their circumstances. They want to call down God's fire on their enemies, but they are reluctant to allow that fire to destroy the evil in their own hearts and in their own community. We may want to cast out the enemy, but the enemy isn't just out there. The enemy is in here. What are the evils, and that's a strong word, what are the evils within our own lives that God wants to strip away? How can we break the stranglehold that God, that sin has on our lives? We can't experience new life without first passing through death to the old. So where do you find yourself in this passage? Are you in the place of desolation where everything feels like it has been torn from you and that the things that you used to rely on no longer work? Do you feel like you're passing through the fire? Are you in the heights and feeling restored to a greater vision of God? Or perhaps you feel like one of the sinners in Zion, trembling at the prospect of God's devouring fire. You would probably be right to tremble. When we look within ourselves and discover all of those injustices that we see out in the world begin in hearts just like ours, if we accept this consuming fire, will there be anything left? And yet, somehow, we find ourselves standing among those who walk righteously and speak uprightly. I don't know if you've seen The Good Place on Netflix, whether it was part of your lockdown education. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you. Uh, but it begins when, after a life of misdeeds, Eleanor Shellstrop finds herself in the good place, as opposed to the bad place. How did she end up here? Surely there's been some kind of cosmic mistake. And so the adventure begins. And if you've seen the rest of the show, you'll know that a lot of it hangs on this question of who deserves to be in the good place? Well, here's the thing. We don't. Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, kept record of our sins, who could stand? It's only because Jesus has taken on the desolation of the cross and the restoration of the resurrection that we can die to our old life and live with him in the glory of new life. Through the Holy Spirit, God dwells in our hearts and is transforming our lives from the inside out 
The holy fire still burns, but it burns within us as we are transformed ever more into his likeness. So church, at its best, isn't a place where we stand comfortably on the heights, looking down and judging the vices of other people. It's not a place where we hide our faults and hope that no one will notice. It's a safe place, a place where we can confess the limits of our own goodness before each other and before God. It's like a sort of Sinners Anonymous, where we admit all of the flaws and failings that we carry around with us, where we acknowledge the depths of our own sinfulness and our failings as individuals and as a community. It's a place where we acknowledge that we are not able to look on the king because of anything that we have done, but because of the grace that he has invited us into. And we celebrate together that grace. And we love, 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 because all that we have is only because of the love that has been lavished on us as we confess that we are forgiven, we are healed. We are released from the sin that binds us and we learn a better way to live together. God's peace doesn't come from some arbitrary kind of goodness. We're not hitching our wagon to the God that offers us the best deal. We have confidence in God precisely because he doesn't accommodate our sinfulness. Instead, he takes it upon himself and overcomes it so that we can share in his perfect peace. The vision of Zion that Isaiah gives us here isn't one where we can just return to business as usual. It's one where riches are shared, where the sick are healed, and crucially, where all people have been forgiven of their sins. In short, God's peace is not the peace that we strive for. It's not the peace that can emerge by our own efforts. It's a peace that can only emerge as we die to our old selves and are resurrected to new life in Jesus Christ who alone is our judge, our ruler, and our king. It is he that will save us.